0: Thank you. And this uh, seminar series title uh, poses a question which is arresting and challenging, certainly challenging for the speakers. So I think you've set quite a hard examination question for us to take. But when I was a student, I was taught that the key thing is not necessarily to answer examination questions, but to explain how you would go about answering them. And I should say right at the outset that I'm not going to answer the question. Uh, There won't be at the end of my talk a clear yes or no. So if you want your money back, now is the time to ask for it. What I'm going to do instead is to describe how economists over a long period, more than a century at least, have struggled with the problem, as Alison said, of the optimum population. And I hope that what I have to say about how economists approach the question and my criticism of how they approach it will help you think about what your answers are uh, to the question. The reference to optimum population signals that a central ingredient in this is welfare economics. What is welfare economics? Welfare economics is concerned with the interplay between ethical values and economic analysis. Now non-economists in the audience may be rather surprised to know that economists have an interest in ethical (laughs) issues. As uh, Robert Solow once said that uh, to ask an economist to talk about ethics was like to ask a turkey buzzard to discuss table manners. (laughs) And I don't know quite what a turkey buzzard is, but one one gets the impression. And it's true that the subject has been, in my view, disgracefully neglected in recent years. And when I was a student, welfare economics was a compulsory part of the curriculum, and leading economists, including here in Oxford, were writing defill theses on the subject. Today, it's largely regarded as an optional extra. People leading textbooks, for example, may include a chapter, but one at least, uh, Hal Varian's book, which is widely used, says that he doesn't himself cover this. But it is a central part of economics. Indeed, John Broom has written recently to say that economics is a branch of ethics. At least much of it is. He says, part of economics is pure science, But most economists are interested in finding better ways of running the economy, of structuring the economic system, or of intervening or not intervening in the economy. All that part of economics is a branch of ethics. Now, I think that's too strong. Uh, I would rather say that welfare economics lies at the interface between economics and moral philosophy. But I fully agree with John that economists need to pay much more attention to the ethical basis of their analysis and to examine critically the values underlying it. And that's the reason for part one of my three-part talk. In the second part, I'm going to examine some of the contributions to the welfare economics of population. And as I said, I'm going to be quite critical. In particular, I'm going to suggest that the economic model underlying quite a lot of it is incomplete and leaves out some of the most important parts of the story. And one of those important elements is inequality, which is in my title and is the subject of section three of the talk. Population growth is taking place in a world characterised by great inequality. And although economists like to assume in their models that everyone is identical, which makes life much simpler, it simply won't do when discussing this question. So that's the rationale for the third section. The final sort of introductory remark I'd like to make concerns the the global perspective of the seminar which I very much welcome and for much of the talk I'm going to be taking a global approach to welfare and justice asking whether there are too many or too few people from the standpoint of the world as a whole. But self-evidently, this will, may well coincide with a population being too small for some countries or indeed whole continents. And I shall refer a moment to the European Union. And I noticed that the optimum population trust, which believes the world is already too full by no fewer than 2.3 billion people, so quite a lot of us wouldn't be here if they had their way, it still classifies 51 of the 162 countries they study as having the capacity to expand their populations. So that's the structure of the talk. And as you can see, it's going to be a mixture of discussing the substantive issue and discussing the approach to it taken by economists. Now, before i start on the first section on welfare economics you may say that the issue posed in the seminar's title is a purely scientific one it comes in the category that john broom describes as part of economists activity which is purely scientific is the current world population of 7 billion reached last month or the 10 billion expected by 2100 the largest sustainable and that requires clearly contributions from experts on water, food, natural resources, health has already been covered in this seminar and I'm not going to trespass on their territory. But in asking is the planet full, we're not simply asking is the current population sustainable. And in a rather important (laughs) essay that the distinguished Swedish economist Knut Vixell gave in a lecture more than hundred years ago, he said, it's quite possible for a country to maintain for centuries a constant population and yet be terribly overpopulated. As he recognised, any judgment about overpopulation involves both technical issues and issues of value. And it struck me the other morning, standing in the Banbury Road, seeing the buses go past saying, sorry, bus full an experience that some of you may have had, we know that doesn't mean that they couldn't actually have taken another passenger. (laughs) The bus wouldn't have stopped moving if we'd got one extra person on board. It's rather that the bus driver was applying a set of rules, partly legal but also social conventions, about how far it's acceptable to squash people together in the bus. So it's not just simply a scientific question of how many people you can get in a bus, it is we have to consider the underlying normative judgments. So how does welfare economists, having made the case that, they're, that we need to examine what they have to say, how do they think about things? The first point I want to make is that judgments by economists take two different forms. Sometimes they make statements saying we have or we do too much or too little or something. But other times they say that the choices people make are distorted. They're not making their choices on the right basis. Now, it may seem to non-economists that the first one is the key issue and that the second is simply a kind of sideshow, a distraction. Because in many situations, in fact, it is the second question that policy is concerned with. I suppose, just to take a somewhat unlikely example, I was to say that there are too many books in the world. I did once move office at the LSE and overheard the porter saying, What has he got all these books for? <laughs> now, that kind of statement is a statement about quantities, and it appears rather odd. On the other hand, I took the book example because one could make an argument on the second kind, which is to say books, of course, are privileged in that they don't pay value-added tax. There's zero rated for value-added tax, unlike other forms of entertainment and so on, like CDs and so on. So it could be argued that we actually consume too many books because the playing field is tilted in the direction of books away from other forms of consumption. And that would be an argument of the second kind, and many arguments in economics are of this form. And in fact, sometimes the argument's made in this way with regard to population. And at this point, I have a confession to make. Um, The only time I've actually made any statement, I believe, in public about population is in a report. uh, When I was a member of something very grandly called the EU High-Level Group on the Future of Social Policy. These grand titles are given to induce you to spend time in meeting rooms in Brussels for hours and hours. But in this uh, report, as you can see, we actually said that we believed that there was a problem. We needed new demographic dynamism. And in particular, as you can see, both referring to increasing immigration, but also to allowing young couples to have the number of children they desire. And that's an example of the second kind of argument. The second kind of argument is that it's saying that basically there isn't a level playing field. It's saying that people can't in fact choose that for various reasons the playing field is tilted against people having the number of children they wish. And as you can see there it's not just this high level group but also the OECD have commented on the fact that there's quite a lot of evidence for a number of certain European countries that people do have fewer children than they claim they would like to have now I'm saying this because I want to distinguish these arguments but also because on reflection I think what we said was wrong that in fact I think it was wrong to make the argument in terms of distortion and in fact the right kind of argument to make in this case is one about quantities and there are several reasons why I think that's the relevant thing to look at the first obvious point is that unlike choosing books or CDs, the decisions by individuals have significant consequences for the rest of us. In the case of books, there's a bit of spillover and that if I read a book, it may make me a better citizen or may have some effect which otherwise benefits other people. But in the case of fertility, this is clearly a, f- a case where there are potentially large external consequences, negative in case of crowding or positive in other respects possibly, which I'll come to in a moment. And it seems to me now that if we really, for example, believed in the need for a new dynamism, then we should have made the case for that as such and not hidden behind other people's decisions as to whether they wanted more children or not. A second reason for doing that is that in welfare economics, it's certainly one thing we've learnt in recent years, is that levelling one playing field, when there are many unlevel playing fields, when there are many problems, levelling one may not necessarily make things better. And this is a clear example, it seems to me, where in the case of women, their position in the labour force is not one in which they could say they face a level playing field. We know that there are all kinds of distortions and barriers which may disadvantage women in the labour market. And that unless one were to act on those as well as on the fertility decision, we might well make things worse rather than better. Removing obstacles to fertility without removing unequal opportunities in the labour market may not be a welfare-improving reform, and indeed may reinforce gender stereotypes and make career advancement more difficult for women. And then thirdly, a third reason why I think this distortion argument is not the right one is that preferences are clearly not simply fixed and given. Preferences are endogenous. They change as a result of education, they change as a result of specific health and family planning advice, and they change as a result of societal pressures. And since any of those things may be influenced by public policy, we have to ask how much should public policy be used to try and change those preferences? And as soon as you ask that question, you're back to an argument again about quantities. That is, in which direction do we want the population to go? So for all of these reasons, it seems to me that that is indeed was a distraction, but I think it was important to get it out of the way. I think the argument should be phrased, as I'm going to make it in the rest of the talk, in terms of whether we have too many people or not. Not whether there's a difference between whether people's preferred and actual family sizes coincide. So that's what the rest of the talk is going to be concerned about. Um, I referred just now to uh, the lecture on optimum population by Knut Ficksell. About the same time, Henry Sidgwick gave a very clear account of the classical utilitarian treatment of the optimum population issue. And it's shown on this slide. On this basis, The planet is too full if the average utility has fallen below the cost of an extra person. And the cost of an extra person is measured in terms of their consumption, which is assumed equal to that of the average person in society. There is, I shall just point out at this juncture, no inequality in this discussion. I'll come back to why that's a serious omission. Alternatively, there is the rule, and I've expressed it in terms of this box down here, the ratio of utility to consumption. If that's less than the marginal cost, in terms of marginal utility, of having an extra person, then the answer to the seminar question is yes. (laughs) The planet is too full. Now, when I was teaching at Harvard last autumn, It became clear that I had a preference for diagrams to explain results that wasn't shared fully by the American students, but the European students in the audience liked them. So I hope this is an approximately European audience, because I want to now use a diagram, uh, which I hope will actually help us understand some of what's going on in what I've just said. This is the only diagram, although it's going to appear again in a slightly different form later on. So if you're allergic to diagrams, Don't worry too much, but it is, I think, helpful to understand. And this explains the the simple utilitarian Sidgwick view, where measured along here is the consumption per head that we're enjoying in the population. And implicit in this, and I'm going to make it explicit in a moment, is the fact as the population gets larger, we move back this way because that reduces consumption per head. So when it says smaller population, that's right down here. That's hardly anyone on the planet. And here's when we've got large numbers. So if you need to think about population going up as we go this way, and if it reaches some point which we regard it as overfull, that's what's marked in this left-hand part. And just to f- relate it to what the previous slide, the slope of this utility derived from consumption is the marginal utility. That's the slope at any point. And the line joining the origin to this point is the ratio of average utility to consumption. And the significance of the point A is that Sidgwick's rule takes us to this point here where these two coincide, where the slope is the same as that of the ray through the origin. And that's the point which will be indicated as the utilitarian optimum, an optimum which is not the same as the maximum sustainable point, this is the point where you can't get anyone else on the bus, this point here, this is a level of consumption which is higher and the population smaller and by this point, certainly, if you got down to here, you would be certainly saying that the planet was too full. Now, this may seem rather far removed from reality. So, let's just put a little bit of flesh on the bones let's do so taking our cues from the global debate about poverty. That is, let's suppose, first of all, following the Human Development Index, pioneered by the United Nations Development Programme, suppose that the well-being from consumption is the logarithm of consumption. And suppose that the point here of just sustainability, corresponds with the extreme poverty level set by the Millennium Development Goals, the first goal of abolishing extreme poverty. Now just making those two assumptions, we can calculate where this point A is. And the somewhat striking feature is that actually it's at a really quite low level of average consumption per head in the world A level only about three times higher than the Millennium Development Goal target. And indeed, way below today's world, current world average. So, just taking those two ingredients and taking the utilitarian view about optimal population suggests that we could indeed expand population very considerably without falling to the left of the point identified as being the optimum. In that basis, the planet isn't far from full. Now, most people's reaction to this, certainly most uh, people writing in this field, has been, there is something wrong. This isn't isn't right. It seems counterintuitive. And quite a lot of what I want to say now is why Is this the wrong conclusion? As Partha Dasgupta put it, utilitarianism, classical utilitarianism, has a seeming problem that it can recommend what are regarded as overly large populations. Now where does this argument go wrong? There are two ingredients to this, two crucial things in this argument. The first is the values that we enter in terms of how we evaluate having more people and the benefits to them and to us. And the second is the underlying economic model. And what I want to argue is that both of these are important. And I think there's been a tendency in the literature to concentrate particularly on the first of these and rather less on the second of these or vice versa. But we need, I think, to put them both together. Starting first with the social welfare function I took a classical utilitarian approach to begin with and it may come as a surprise to many non-economists that much economic analysis today is firmly rooted in classical utilitarian thinking. Robert Lucas, Nobel Prize winner in his 2003 address to the American Economic Association said. To evaluate the effects of policy change on different consumers we can calculate welfare gains for all of them, one at a time, and add to obtain the welfare gain for the group. That's what effectively we were doing when applying the Citric analysis just now. Now for Lucas, this here regarding this as apparently Quite self evident. That's, that's what you should do. He called it the general logic of quantitative welfare analysis. And if you look in economics journals, I'm willing to bet that out of those articles that express some view about welfare, that say something, whether something's better or worse, nine out of ten of them are taking a utilitarian position. But this completely ignores the fact that in the last hundred years or so we've seen very substantial developments and criticisms of utilitarianism. It's almost as though a physicist was to examine the economic consequences of climate change by simply referring to Alfred Marshall's Principles of Economics written in 1890. There's a lot that's relevant in Marshall and there's a lot that's relevant in Sidgwick but at the same time we clearly need to think about what's wrong with those uh, it ethical basis for this discussion. And I'm going to pick out really two of the three things I list there. I'm going to leave out the first one, which is rather straightforward and obvious. What's wrong with the utilitarian position? First of all, that of course, we may simply want to bring in quite different principles, alternative principles as to how we think about the issue of population. And one important strand of criticism coming mostly from philosophy has been that we want to choose, apply other criteria than those simply of classical utilitarianism or some variation on it. So I've just listed one here, again quoting John Broome, who refers to the, what he calls the basic intuition that adding people to the population is not in itself valuable. And that leads him immediately to reject certainly classical utilitarianism, but also average utilitarianism and other forms of the same way of thinking. And such a shift in our ethical perspective will certainly give you a different potential answer to the question posed in the seminar. Such a basic intuition, which is you give no weight as such to additional people, may be expected to shift as away from the no answer back towards a yes answer and the same I think probably follows if we look at the third possibility which is to adopt an alternative evaluative basis and here I've taken the example of Amartya Sen's theory of capabilities most recently described in his book the idea of justice which was named by the economists as being the best book of the year for 2009. And broadly speaking, what he's arguing is capabilities refer to the freedom that people have to realise their potential, their opportunities, rather than their outcomes. Clearly a different way of assessing the advantages or disadvantages from adding to the population. And again, this will have a significant effect on how we think about the question as whether there are too many people. And the first point to make about the capabilities approach is to say that, as discussed, for example, in the literature on measuring poverty, one implication of doing thinking in those ways is that an absolute concept of capabilities, one's ability to function and the potential that one can achieve within a society is not something which is fixed absolutely in terms of resources. It shifts us away from thinking about $1.25 a day. It shifts us away to thinking about the kind of functionings people may want to achieve and then, having done that, to think about what you actually need to do that. So yesterday, for example, watching the news and listening to the interviews with young people, the million unemployed young people looking for jobs, I was struck by the fact, of course, that to get a job today in the today's labour market, you don't need just the linen shirt and leather shoes that Adam Smith referred to in 17-whatever. You need at the very least, a mobile phone, for example. You need different goods to do this. And in the same way, shifting to a capability approach when thinking about the world's population, we have to think about the resources needed to participate in a society which, of course, is itself considerably, as we've seen, richer than the $1.25 minimum. And so this, to begin with, I think, would begin to shift the view away from very large populations that might be justified on a purely utilitarian basis. And secondly, the capability approach is inherently multidimensional. There are many elements that determine the opportunities open to people. And in their recent survey of functionings and capabilities, Kaushik Basu and Luis Lopez-Calva said, in trying to empirically compare the quality of life achieved by different societies, We need to focus on a few salient functionings. Do people in society X have the option of a long and healthy life? Are people able to live lives free of political oppression? Are people able to read and write? Do people have enough to eat and drink? Now, in each of those, it's clear that a key role is played not just by private resources, but also by public provision. Even in the case of the last, food, food is a personal good but clearly access to food depends on public order, depends on transport, depends on infrastructure. And We've seen, for example, in Somalia in recent times how the lack of public administration and lack of transport infrastructure has seriously limited the relief effort. And in fact, pressure on public infrastructure is often invoked as a reason for saying that indeed there are too many people. Put the other way around, put positively, those who are willing to invest more in public infrastructure, an essential ingredient in guaranteeing capabilities, are more likely to agree that the world population can be expanded. So I think the point I'm trying to bring out is that thinking about a different set of ethical considerations may lead one to change one's view quite radically. The second ingredient is the way in which we model the economy. Here I certainly part company with quite a number, or probably most of my professional colleagues. Keynes I think summarised very nicely what we were doing in trying to construct economic models But I think that the emphasis in the profession has tended to focus too much on the first part of the sentence the science of thinking in terms of models and not enough on the second part which is the art of choosing models relevant to the contemporary world and so it seems to me that in this field as in others we've tended to take too narrow a view of how the economy works looking at that in considerable sophisticated detail, but ignoring many other things. And that's, for example, listed on the slide, some of the many things which certainly one needs to bring in, one of which, the contribution of new people to production, has been brought in. It was brought in by Sidgwick and later by James Mead. And they pointed out, of course, that people don't just consume, they also produce. And so to that extent, that one takes account of that, then the additional population, in fact, would become more rather than less desirable. That is, if you start off from my situate rule at the top, the ratio of welfare to the cost of adding an extra person, that's the box at the top. And we asked at that time whether it's less than one. These things subtract or add. The first one subtracts. It says, well, if the additional people are going to produce something, then that makes the balance shift even further towards adding to the population rather than subtracting from it. Now, of course, that in turn, though, raises the question of just what is the role of labour in production? And I was struck reading uh, the uh, article in Oxford Today by James Martin, which some of you may have read earlier this year, where he referred to a time when conventional work is done by machines. I suspect there must be some services where that would not be true, but uh, if that was the case, of course, then this consideration would disappear and you'd be less likely to vote for an increase in population. But the key things seem to be the things that I've put in heavy here. The negative impact of people in terms of the use of resources and damage to the environment and the possibly positive effect down here in terms of the technologies that we have. And what I should just say before I discuss these is, it's of course the key thing here is the impact of an additional person on resources, environment and on technical change. Of course, all of us here already, and actually I'm rather conscious in this rather hot room, and with like on your side of the lamp, but it's certainly hot over here, Each of us is adding to the use of resources, or rather subtracting from the resources by being here, and is equally adding to the damage to the climate. But of course, in a sense, we're here, so we're we're not the issue. The issue is about what happens we want to add to the population, and that's the question I want to focus on in the moment. But the other point to make, of course, is that these things are themselves, of course, influenced by policy. So when you ask what is the negative impact on the world's resources, that depends on what actions we take to offset any negative impact. And those people who, for example, are willing to invest more in averting climate change, people who are persuaded by the Stern Review, are therefore going to be potentially more relaxed about the population increase because by that token, the damage to the environment will be reduced. Slightly paradoxically, of course, they will find themselves going into the same lobby when we vote no or yes as people who deny that climate change is affected by people, that climate change is man made So climate deniers will go into the same lobby saying it's all right to have more people because they don't make any difference as people who are willing to invest a lot in dealing with climatic damage And the only people in the other lobby will be those who believe that man does have a bad effect and we shouldn't do anything about it. So you can see by thinking about it in this way, one begins to sort out people into different groups as to who's going to say yes or no. Now this is something clearly which has been covered by other talks in this series. So I'm not going to say any more about this clearly very important part of the equation, except to say it clearly has to be here in this balance between pluses and minuses. But I want to say something about the last one of these. Because I don't think the last one is actually covered in the rest of this uh, series, which is the idea that an economy, the dynamism of an economy, depends on the growth of the population. Many years ago, the American sociologist Siebre Gilfion argued that increasing population stimulates invention because it increases the number of potential finders He contrasts it with with, uh, more, he says, more population does not help with more portrait photographs because more labour must go to make them, but as to invention, increasing population entails that each inventor's work is both more widely useful and at the same time there are more people to invent it. And this insight has been built into endogenous growth theory. You may remember many years ago, Gordon Brown was laughed at in the House of Commons for talking about the endogenous growth theory. But there was something to it, which is the idea that growth, in fact, is generated not purely by exogenous factors, but by things that we do, including, for example, research and development, which is hardly surprising. Nor, I think, is it surprising, if one thinks about it in that way, that if the outcome of research and development expenditure is to be seen as an extreme value process, that is the best idea is what we're looking for, then the probability of making that discovery or the probability of getting the best idea is going to rise as the population gets larger. In a larger population one is more likely to find a new Shakespeare or a new Mozart or perhaps more practically, the more people working in research and development, the more likely it is we're going to find breakthroughs in, for example, vaccines or anything of that sort. So this suggests, if you think about this large numbers and extreme value way of thinking about it, that actually the increase in the population may then bring with it some potential advantages. That is, someone who's otherwise going to be in the red box of my diagram may turn out to be the next Milton or Shakespeare. Now, of course, this argument is possibly seductive and clearly not, though, either logically or empirically very well founded. And logically, there's a problem because what happens is not... it isn't... these aren't independent events and therefore people are influenced one by another, so that won't work as a way I've described. But also, it's very hard to find empirical evidence to suggest that increased populations are going to grow faster. In fact if one looks at the empirical evidence about growth one is struck by the fact that either people assume that there is no effect of population or that they assume that there is and it's simply proportional without testing for whether that's true. So, for example, uh, this, um, the quotation is here by Robert Solow, who points out that we compare countries according to how much they spend on research and development relative to GDP and that regard those a 10% ratio in one country as being 10% equivalent to a 10% somewhere else. But, of course, the fact that one country is bigger than another means that the United States, for example, is spending a lot more absolutely as many more engineers, scientists, than a smaller country and they should therefore be producing more scientific advances. But in fact, as I said, the evidence either doesn't support this or doesn't in fact test for whether this is true and whether, for example, this is actually related to population or to population, some other uh, measure of population size. So what I want to do is simply point this up as a concern that we need to think more about what the relationship is between population and technological advance. And to contribute my own small piece of research, I thought perhaps having had uh, three-quarters of an hour or so of rather solid economics, you might like some light relief. So that uh, I just took one example where my extreme value argument rather than Shakespeare and Milton to take uh, the example of athletics, which is clearly an extreme value process. It's a winner-take-all example. So I just simply looked at whether in fact larger countries produce more winners. So what the graph shows you is the proportion of the world's population lined up from the smallest country, I think Seychelles probably, one of those small islands, uh, through to the largest which is China at the end. And then up here it shows you the number of Olympic medals won in Beijing in 2008 and the smallest country to win a medal, one medal, was Trinidad and Tobago, with a population one thousandths of that of China. China did not win a thousand medals, which it would do if it's was proportionate to population. It won actually a hundred, and that's broadly the relationship which uh, seems to fit it quite well over the whole set of data. Roughly, your number of medals goes up to the power of about two-thirds. Now, Olympic medals may seem like a strange lead-in to my final section on inequality, but there is actually a link. Uh, 32 years earlier, at the time of the Montreal Olympics, the French newspaper Le Monde uh, had a big headline saying that France had won another gold medal for inequality. And uh, this is, I think, the the only time to my knowledge I've appeared on the front page of Le Monde. Inequality is the missing part so far of the story. And I think it's a large missing point. And it's a missing point in much of economics. There was a time when classical economists thought that distribution, who got what, was the principal problem of political economy. Today, That doesn't seem to be the case but it is, as I said, an important part of answering the question. How does it affect how we think about these things? Inequality in the world as a whole arises for two related but separate reasons. There's large differences of income and other resources across countries and there are large differences within countries. Taken together, they produce a very unequal world. Now, many people think the United Kingdom is unequal, but the world as a whole is considerably more so. Now, how do these differences, and beginning with the inequality between countries, the top one here, how does that affect the arguments that I described earlier which economists make about the optimum population? Clearly, whether the population should increase or not depends on where the population has increased. Now here the news is not good. On the basis of the United Nations projections, and I've taken the period 2011 to 2050, there will be relatively little or no population growth in Europe. Growth in the United States will be 110 million, this is a projections, but that's only a small part of the 2.6 billion increase that's expected over this period. The projected increases in India are 486 million, Nigeria, 230 million, and they account for about a quarter of the total. In fact, those countries, it's so large that I've left them off the next graph, which I want to show you. So what the next graph shows is where the big increases in population are taking place in relation to how rich these countries are, defined in terms of their GDP per capita, expressed in terms of uh, allowing for purchasing power differences. And there are 30 countries where population is going to go up by at least 20 million in this period. These countries are shown by the points on this graph. One of them is the United States. One of them is Mexico. And then after that, they're all below the world average income. 14 of the 30 are below the bottom quartile of the world's distribution. So you can see there are 14 of them inside this rectangle here. Now this clearly affects how we think about the argument I made before. So I want to go back just for a moment to the diagram I drew last time. modifying this to bring in the inequality. That is to say, not that we've got one country, as we were, one world with all getting the same, but to say we have rich and poor countries. The rich one is up there and the poor one is down here. And if you remember, the criterion was whether the slope here, which is the cost, is more or less than the benefit, which is the slope of the line through the origin. And as I've drawn it, and this is probably the case, the cost given by this is considerably greater than the benefit measured by the dashed line, whereas the reverse is true for the rich country at the top. So you can see from this that whatever we might have thought, my calculations I did about the uh, Millennium Development Goal target and the looking at the world as a whole, will certainly be a long way off once we allow for these differences between rich and poor countries, given that it's down here that most of the increase is taking place. And this is further reinforced by the second part of the world inequality I referred to, which is the inequality within countries. And the world is unequal because, both because Zambia is poorer than Britain, but also because Zambia has a high level of inequality. Now the measure I'm going to take of inequality uh, shown on the next slide is a measure known as the Gini coefficient which gives you a measure of the distance between people broadly interpreted within a country. And the figure for Zambia is 50% according to the World Bank figures. And Zambia is an unequal country and it finds itself therefore quite a long way over here in this group down here of the most unequal countries. There are a lot of countries with less inequality, Nordic countries for example, Slovenia, Czech Republic and others here also in this group, but relatively few of those are growing by 20 million or more. You can see that compared to the group of all countries distribution, the red one which shows where the countries where population is growing by 20 million or more is very much shifted to the right of those distributions. So that, taken together, the effect of between-country inequality and the effect of within-country inequality means that it is particularly in countries which are poor and which have a substantial number of poor people where the population is likely to grow. To put it a different way, we can see if we take the current distributions of income in these different countries and ask what will happen because of the population increase, assuming nothing else changes, then population growth will add three quarters of a billion, three quarters of a billion to the number below $1.25 a day. That is, the Millennium Development Target goal is going to be made worse other things equal, of course, we hope that growth and other things may do something to stop that. But just in terms of the challenge that one is faced with, population growth is going to increase the scale of the problem by approximately a third. Now, of course, this does not mean that only countries with above-average incomes should be allowed to expand their populations. It doesn't mean that because, obviously, there's a second part of the story which is the extent of world redistribution. Because the calculations I described before were assuming that the costs of an additional Zambian is borne by the population of Zambia. But of course the answer to the question whether we should expand the population depends then on whether that is the case or whether the costs of the additional population are shared throughout the world as a whole. An expansion of the world's population may raise social welfare if it's accompanied by substantial redistribution between countries. And so people may well differ in their judgments about whether or not the planet is full according to their willingness to accept further redistributive transfers. I referred earlier on to the example of buses on the Banbury Road. If you take the example of uh, trains to London or trains uh, anywhere else, on Virgin Railways, which some of you may have been on, you've no doubt had the experience of uh, finding that there are no seats in second class, or it's now called standard class, uh, but there are empty seats in first class. And that of course is very much what I'm describing here, that uh, it may well be that if people in first class are willing to move their briefcases off the empty seats next to them, we can get more people on the train. And that's exactly what this very obvious but I think important point is making. So inequality within and between countries is, I think, an essential part of the story that the analysis I described at the beginning is not only wrong because of its adopting a particular approach to the ethical statements, not as only wrong because of thinking about economics in a particular way, but because it leaves out this crucial question. But also, of course, it underlines the fact that how we think about whether the planet is too full or not does depend, therefore, on how much we're willing to carry out that redistribution. So one can't, I think, answer the question posed in this seminar independently from answering the question how much we're willing to do to combat world poverty and world inequality. So what are the conclusions? Um, I've argued that the way in which economists think about this is, needs to be seriously, I think, reconsidered both their overdue need I think to take account of new thinking on ethical issues on account of the fact that the model being used leaves out many of the central issues that there's a need clearly to do research on issues like the effect of population size on the technological dynamism of our societies and above all that one needs but incorporate from the start the inequalities between and within countries. As I said, I warned you at the beginning, I'm not going to say yes or no, but what I've summarised on the slide is some of the factors that would, I think, lead you on to go in one direction or another. And so I've, I'll end with this as a way of, if you, were, you can work your way through and decide how you feel about some cases, positive questions, like whether you think robots are going to replace people. In other case, normative questions about whether you think that we should carry out more redistribution. Looking at this just before I came in, I realised that there are, I think, four no's and two yeses. Now, that's entirely accident and gives no clue to how I actually think. Thank you very much.